Well, good morning. A friend of mine, Ed Egger, Ed and his wife Shay are dear friends of mine. They're in our uh, small group. They normally sit over there at the 11 o'clock. They're in Colorado today. Don't be hating on them. Ed, guess what Ed did? I've been following him uh, on Friday and Saturday for over 37 hours. Ed went to Steamboat Springs, Colorado and made yet another attempt to do a 100-mile trail run. Could you imagine running 100 miles? Some of you have done marathons, but to run 100 miles on a trail in extreme conditions, could you imagine the electrolyte replenishment, the caloric intake, all the strain, all that ordeal? I think we would all agree Ed just accomplished something very hard, very tough, very difficult. A few weeks ago, some people that I know in my circle, people who love me and love our church, they were saying to me, we need to have this really difficult conversation. We need to talk to so-and-so. We love them and we need to uh, intervene and we need to, we need to. And I realized with all the we, what they meant was I was going to be the one to have the hard, difficult, tough conversation. And we had it and God's grace is good. I mean, I had it and God's grace uh, is good there. One of the couples who left our small group on Wednesday night, they stayed late talking and talking because some people have that gift. And uh, this guy left our house at 11 o'clock at night, was up at 4.30 a.m. heading to CrossFit. Some of you are crazy like that. And he was working, doing some crazy stuff for a couple of hours in this CrossFit regime. That's hard, isn't it? That's difficult. There's a best-selling book out there called Do the Hard Thing. And this uh, September, this month, September and October, we're tackling some hard questions. I'm probably going to regret it in the end, but this is what we're doing. Daniel Hicks, our new communications director, has helped us. Um, You anonymously sent in your questions. And I love some of you. You were like asking like the most difficult questions about faith and science and just, I mean, afterlife and pain and suffering and just terrible. I mean, just all these difficult questions and like you would pepper me with questions. And at the end, you would say, love you, Robert. Keep up the good work. Appreciate you. (sighs) Okay. Anyway, here we are. And last week we looked at uh, why doesn't God do something about pain and suffering? And I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you hadn't. And this morning we're going to tackle this question up in giant font. What about all the violence and killing? I was meeting with a pastor named Chuck, who is at Pine Lake Church, and he's moving to Texas to take a church there. And we were talking about this question. And it was interesting, his commentary said, you know, there was a day when uh, like our grandmothers, great-grandparents, we would read the stories of the old with a high view of God, and we weren't worried about this. There was just this sense of trust in God. But the modern world, when we put ourselves at the center of the story and we want to fashion a God in our making, we have a lot of problems with uh, the violence of old. How can you read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2 or 1 Samuel chapter 15 or Joshua chapter 6 and you see the annihilation of cities. You see total destruction. You see the killing of women and children and animals and what we would deem to be innocent people. How in the world can that be justified? Several years ago, approximately six years ago, we did a sermon series called The Fatherless Generation. Some of you uh, may remember this. And what I remember about this uh, sermon series is that it it drew in some young professionals. I remember some of them specifically. There was a young lady named Emily. Some of you know Emily. She came uh, to church that day. She, She worked for Teach for America. And she said, I'm new to Mississippi, new to Jackson. I'm like, good luck. And uh, California girl, and she said, look, I, I saw something about this sermon series, and I want to be a part of this, to, to love our neighbors and to be involved uh, with kids who don't have a dad, to mentor them. This is the kind of church I want to be involved with. Emily, some of you know, met a guy here named Bennett. She met him at Fondren Church in a group, and they married. Emily was on staff here for a while, and they bolted. They moved uh, to California. We'll get, we'll get them back one day, but we, we love and appreciate those guys. I remember Emily, and I remember a young man who I want to be respectful when I say this. He was different. 
Uh, his lifestyle was very different. Uh, the, what he had painted on his body and sewn into his body and it, it was just a different looking dude, but I was proud to have him during that sermon series and he seemed to be fired up. And he told me one day after the service nearby, about a hundred yards over there in the dueling hall auditorium, he told me, um, how fired up he was, but he said, I don't, I don't really know that I believe in God or, you know, but, but, but I, I'm drawn to a people that, that love each other, that want to make the world a better place. The next sermon series that we did was called Living by the Book. And this guy, he goes, uh, I think I'm checking out. And it occurred to me, look, look, look I'm not trying to be funny, I just want to be real. It occurred to me in a real way, and it's really growing that way, is that a lot of people like this guy have a problem with the Bible. A growing problem with the Bible. And so there is a new generation that we love the fatherless generation, serving people and making the world a better place. But living by the book, I mean, tell me a little bit more about this book. And it was so interesting. I'll I'll never forget this. This gentleman, probably in his late 20s, early 30s, he said to me, he said, what about that part where God uh, tells people to eat their young, to eat their children? And so we had a chat one day about how God is not pro-cannibalism, how he had gotten something really wrong about what's in it. But listen to me real quick. Both looking into the Bible, no doubt me more than he, but looking at the Bible, being students of it somewhat, knowing a little bit of its contents, we had vastly different views. For him, his view of God was some moral monster, some, some evil being who made ancient Hebrews eat their young. And for me, no surprise um, that I'm going to say this, but my view of God, vastly different. My view of God is a creator God who is good, who's a sustainer, who is the author of everything that is good and beautiful and true. A little bit of my journey, I've never really struggled with belief in does God exist? I've studied some neurology. Maybe I'm just wired that way. I just, to me, it's it's axiomatic. It's self-evident. I mean, go outside, look at design, look at intention, see what we see, know what we know, that stubborn, eternal longing in our hearts, the restless mind. There is a God. I've never really struggled on, is there a God? But what kind of God is God? For me, I've had a load of doubts. I've had a crisis of faith, a few, in fact. I've had a list of questions that span from Florida to California where I've lived, and that's a long way I've been challenged in my faith by smart people, but I stand here today and I say that I believe it's smart to believe in God. But wait a second, there's a lot of different views about God. Last night, Ariana Grande was singing to me that God is a woman. Is God a he, a she, a they, an it, an energy force, an impersonal being? Is God a state of mind? Is God a myth? Uh, what is God like? Is he more like a fundamentalist preacher or a progressive educated person? I mean, the Bible was written a long time ago by ignorant and primitive people who didn't have cable, which of course we know today is such a disappointment. Isn't religion, isn't it just, doesn't it, isn't it an endless supply of violence and hatred and hypocrisy and bigotry and bad Christian music? This morning, as we start and as we attempt to answer this question, I want to put up a couple of quotes because I want to challenge you today on your view of God. And here's the first quote I want to put up there. God created man in his own image, and man, being the gentleman, returned the favor. Get that? Pretty witty, but it's wise. 
One woman I really admire put it this way. Here's how you know you have created God in your own image. Y'all want to know? She knows. He agrees with you on everything. He hates all the people you hate. He voted for the person you voted for. If you're passionate about filling the blank, then God is passionate about filling the blank. Above all, he is tame. Hear me now, hear me now, hear me now. You never get mad at him or blown away by him or scared of him because God you have created in your image is controllable. So today for us to answer this question, guess what? You've got to get somewhere in this vicinity. And here's the vicinity you need to get in. There is a story that you can understand, and there's a lot of the story that you can understand, but you, as awesome as you are, wink, wink, you are not the center of the story. And I had a light bulb come on this week. Can we put that back up, Micah? When it talked about the last part there about God um, being a tame God, and that word scared of him. You ever heard a preacher preach? I think you have because you've heard me say this, that, that when the Bible talks about fear, it means a reverential awe. You ever heard that? And we try to clean it up, don't we? But you look at the scripture, like some, some people are just scared of God. Like they run and leave something on the floor. Like they're scared of God. And I'm saying to you, there is something missing. There is something missing in us when we think we're the final arbiter and judge. And it is God who is on trial. And let me just ask you, the God that you have, that controllable, manageable deity that's at your beck and call, that has to suit what you think he should be, how's that working for you? What kind of joy, what kind of awe, what kind of awe wonder does it, what does it create in you? What type of worship does it lead to? How does it change how you view your sexuality and how you spend your money and how you treat other people? How is the manageable, controllable, very tame God in a box working for you. I struggle in writing this sermon, not because of the complexity or difficulty necessarily of the question. I just wanted to watch college football and go to some of the games. But I struggled in this, and then I struggled with, well, what's the answer? And I wanted to stand up here and do extra singing, not me, but Shannon and the team. And um, some of you thought I was going to play the drums today. I'll do that next Sunday. But I wanted to stand up here and kind of go John Piper. Because John Piper would say, and he's a really reformed theologian, some of us are not, but some of you are not, but John Piper just says, God can do what he wants to do. God gives life, God can take life, we are not God, and he does as he pleases. I want to say to you, though it sounds uh, trite and possibly cruel and not satisfactory to the searcher, to the seeker, I do want to say I'm with Piper. I want to share four passages that I'd love for you to look at and cling to. The first is in Job. This is very famous poetry and literature. I bet a lot of you have heard this. Naked, this is the one who suffered so greatly. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Here it is. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Can we say that? I mean... Is it a tameable God that we want or need, or do we need God to be God? Next passage, it's in Deuteronomy. I love this one, Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His works are perfect. In all his ways are justice. A faithful God who does no wrong. Do you know anybody like that? You don't. What are our preachers doing? What are our politicians doing? What are our parents doing? What are the people that 
supposed to love and care for us. What are they doing? They're letting us down. We are letting each other down time after time again. God is faithful. Who does no wrong? Upright and just is he. He is separate from us. He's holy. Next verse. James, the half-brother of Jesus. There is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Just as we need to change our view of God and elevate our conception of who he is, we need to get ourselves off the throne. We love, we love, we love, we follow him as we love, but ultimately God is the one who can judge. Next verse, the fourth one, Romans eleven thirty three. I fall back on this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Here's the part I want you to grasp. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, we're not going to get God. If you got God in a microscope or a telescope or some test tube or in some laboratory experiment, then you've reduced God and he is no longer God. In fact, he's not even close. But what I want to do, um, I guess I'm arrogant enough to try this, is I want to challenge, not challenge it, but I want to, I want to take that last sentence there. His paths are beyond tracing out. And I want to attempt to trace out a little bit about this question. Why all the killing? Why all the violence, particularly in the Old Testament? And so what I want to do there is just attempt to, to bring some insight to this. And I want to do so uh, by way of illustration. I learned in an English class that illustrations are windows of truth that illuminate concepts by means of analogy. Every illustration falls a little bit short. But I want to uh, get you to think about this. Again, the, the greatness of God cannot be readily grasped. But let's say in 1948 that you were here. This sanctuary uh, was built in 1948. So let's say that in 1948 you were alive and well and you didn't know, uh, well, you did know about America bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that's all you knew. Now, you had no history, you had no context, you had no understanding of what was behind the scenes. You didn't understand anything about the glory of it, the awe of it, the terror of it, what went into those people making that decision, the pilots and those who dropped the bomb. You had no, you had no uh, knowledge of that. You just knew that bombs were dropped and women and children and pets and animals were devastated. And it was, you know, rare But that doesn't provide you with all the comfort that you need. That's all you knew, but you didn't know what was firing on other hemispheres. And you didn't know about Japan and Pearl Harbor. And you didn't know about Hitler and the Holocaust. You had very limited information. And that's what happens to us. My 19, um, he'll be 20 this week on September 20th. My my son, my oldest, came into the room back in the summer. He said, Dad, you ever heard this guy Bill Maher? And I said, yeah, he's he's a funny uh, comedian that got in a lot of trouble after 9-11 with some of the... um, controversial things uh, that he said, but there's been a reemergence of Bill Maher and he's read all the famous New York Times authors, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. And so there's burgeoning a movement. It's a loud voice, by the way. It's people, I think this is interesting, by the way, philosophically, stay with me here, but people who are angry at a God that doesn't exist. Now, I, I don't know. I just, I want to thank Jesus for the joy he gives. For the forgiveness of my sins. 
for a, a spouse who believes and walks with me and forgives me and I, her, and we share this together. And like there are times of doubt and there are times of frustration, but like there is a good Savior and I know a peace. And I tell you, like that man said, come see a man, come see a man. But there are some people, I told my son, who was going off to his sophomore year. I said to him, there are some people, man, they are really angry at a God that they believe doesn't exist. And they take things out of context, right, as endless fodder for the disenfranchised. And so while I laugh at a brilliant comedian and while I appreciate the fact that God loves him as a seeker and as a cynic, he is one who is searching, but I want my son I want my son to have the right view of God and I want him to understand that there are problems in scripture, that there are, there are issues that every thinking rational person has to look at. Just like we talked about last week with pain and suffering, we look at these stories of violence and we wonder, but here's what I want to say to you. We got to know history and context. Ultimately, his ways are unsearchable. We try to trace them out, but I would say this. When I'm uh, with someone on an airplane or talking to somebody that I don't know, I have an atheist who lives on our street, love the guy. He's, he's strange. Sometimes he's militant, but we have really good conversations. If I ever see him in church one day, I'm going to fall over. If you see me fall over, you'll know like I've been slain in the spirit or this dude is out there among you, right? <laughs> but like as we talk together, um, he's a searcher. He is a searcher, but as we talk about, and this has come up, these... Um, Stories of conquest in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 2, Joshua 6, 2 Samuel 15, the judges, read all of the judges, and you'll see there are some great problems that make us say, why this violence? It seems so senseless. And one of the things I've talked to my friend about, I encourage you to learn in this regard as well, is that in the midst of the violence, remember progressive revelation, God meets people where they're at. What do you, what do you get in a violent culture? Anybody know? What do you get in a violent culture? Do you know? Violence. Violence. And uh, back in the first of the year, we were in Israel. I stood both on the Israeli-Lebanon border, and soldiers were looking at me. They were heavily armed, and they were looking at me. And then a couple of days later, I stood on the Israeli-Syrian border, and I didn't see any guards, but I saw a couple of watchtowers. And I looked at my phone because my wife prompted me, and we saw back in February, fact check me if you want to, there were bombs going off 40 miles away in Damascus. And I looked at those towers, and I thought, I'm across the line. Like, they have every right to... to a sniper to take me out, and I scurried with all the fear of God back to the bus. We live in a very violent world, but in the midst of God meeting people where they're at, he moves them forward. You see, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth was very progressive in its day. And Jesus comes and he moves us past that. He moves a love your neighbor. So, so what I do, and I encourage you to do this, when you hear the stories or learn the stories of violence and you're interacting with the skeptic, as you might be skeptical, just take a breath and calm down. These are descriptive, not prescriptive. God is not calling you to kill. He's not moving us backwards. God moves humanity forward at each and every turn. And what's interesting is along these stories, right alongside these stories of violence that is shocking and confusing and it angers us, right alongside these stories or we see stories and principles of blessing and serving and nonviolence and justice and compassion and equity and love. Let me ask you, when it, it would it be, is it, is it primal, is it primitive and barbaric to care for the refugees, the orphans, and the widows? Because that's in Deuteronomy. Is it, is it violent and criminal to, to leave a portion of your field unharvested so that the poor can come and they can eat behind you? 
because that's in Leviticus. Is it, is it wrong or is it really cool to think about that slaves should be brought to freedom? Because that's the emerging idea in Exodus. Is it okay? Are anybody offended in the room? Does it shock your modern sensibilities to love your neighbor? Because that's the story also in Leviticus. And so amidst this of violence that, that shocks us, and it ought to, that brings questions to us about history, about humanity, about violence itself and what is good and right and senseless, what we don't know and what we might one day understand. We have to see what is beautiful and what is good. But let me take you now to the phrase in the Bible that both gives me great comfort and it challenges me. And I'm hoping in the minutes we have left to do the same with you. And it's this phrase, slow to anger, slow to anger. And so let me ask you, particularly the men in the room, are you slow to anger? Can I say to you that it's been one of the struggles of my life? When I had hair, it was red. So I can be a fiery guy. That can be redeemed. That can be channeled and harnessed for the kingdom of God and the good of people in my life. But are you slow to anger? Listen to what the Proverbs say real quick. You see, God is slow to anger and calls us to be like him. Here's what it says in Proverbs 14. Whoever is what? Slow to anger, has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is what? Slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Scripture tells us that a fool gives full vent to his wrath. I've seen it. I've seen it recently. I went to a home late at night. I was summoned there to help a family mediate a conflict. And this man, the leader of the family, gave full vent. I'm like, uh, I'm a pastor and I'm watching. He gave full vent. He didn't care. His anger had taken control. But listen to me for a second. Really important because I want to speak grace to everybody who struggles in this area. To be slow to anger does not mean that you don't experience feelings of frustration. It just means that you can rein them in. It just means that you can control those feelings. So we see God described in Scripture as one who is, what? Slow to anger. And God's anger is different than our anger. A couple years back, I saw uh, the movie Lincoln. Anybody see it? A great actor named Daniel Day-Lewis. Shannon saw it. He's about to get the guitar and come on stage and try to close me out like the Grammys or something. (laughs) But in this movie, Lincoln, Daniel Day-Lewis plays Abraham Lincoln, one of my favorite people in all of history, certainly American history. And there's this scene, the acting is brilliant, and there is this scene that is so moving, I get chills. If I watched it tonight, I would get chills again. And Lincoln, is he's at a late-night cabinet meeting at the White House. And they're arguing, they're talking loud, and Lincoln is ready. He is ready to pass legislation. He's ready to move the country forward. He is ready that all humans would be given dignity in this land of the free and home of the brave. And he wants America, under his leadership and theirs, to pass the 13th Amendment that would put an end to this plague called slavery. But you know what? He's alone. Everyone in his cabinet is against him. And they're arguing, and it's getting sort of nasty. And Daniel Day-Lewis says, Abraham Lincoln is sitting at the end of the table. He's quiet and he's calm, which is a good idea a lot of the time. And in his quietness and in his calmness, 
he breaks his silence and he slams the table and he says, I can't listen to this anymore. And what's so moving about that, if you're a history fan, American fan, it just you realize he's not just saying, I can't listen to you anymore. He's saying, I can't take it anymore. And every fiber of who I am will fight this. And you see, Hollywood depicted this so well, I believe. His anger was anger. But you know what? If you're always angry, you don't get anybody's attention. But the hush that filled the room of his cabinet members, because he wasn't an angry guy. You see, his anger was deliberate. It was on purpose. It was under control. And so it is with God's anger. So I have two points about God being slow to anger. Listen closely. God is slow to anger. Second point, God is slow to anger. Listen to the inflection. First point, God is slow to anger. Second point, God is slow to anger. So hear me, Psalm 15. You may not have a category for this. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence. You ready? I told you you weren't ready. He hates with a passion. Well, God loves, hates the sin, but loves the sinner. This is just one of those that show us we can't tame God. So he hates, according to this passage, he hates the violent and the wicked. He hates the terrorist that tapes bombs to his chest in a crowded shopping mall. He hates the wickedness and violence of the card artist that cheats, rips off the elderly widow. He hates the violence and the wickedness that one possesses who is a corrupt politician or an abusive father or a date rapist who slips in the pill at the bar and the drink and has another yet another sexual conquest and gets off scot-free. He hates the wickedness and the violence and the pedophile whose family still calls him uncle. Some of you say in modern language, I don't have room for God's wrath. Can I say to you this morning, yes, you do. You do. God is slow to anger. Thank God. And you see, real quick, God's anger is different than our anger. Let me tell you about your anger. I know about your anger because I'm a human and I know about my anger. And our anger, more times than not, is wounded ego anger. Well, you didn't invite me to the party. You didn't include me. You treated me different the other day. I know you kind of said something about me. It's different. God's anger is not a wounded ego anger. That's how a lot of that's the prism, the lens from which some people who are So angry at a God they believe doesn't exist. That's what they're looking at. But God's anger is like, it's parent-like in love for His children. All of His children. And so this anger and this wrath, it's important for us to understand. I want to share a little bit from a writer named John Mark Comer. He talks about God's wrath in a f- four quadrants. He says there's 
present wrath, which almost never occurs. That's when God steps in and stops evil right then and there. Remember I talked about it last week, taser God? It almost never happens. There's future wrath. And the future wrath is a wrath that, um, as another writer, Dallas Willard, would say, he says that God is not mean, but God is dangerous. Listen to me for a second. God is not mean, but He's dangerous. Like gravity or nuclear power or hurricane. Like you want to be on the right side. So that's terrifying. If you've turned inward and you're selfish. And you're not following the traces and the clues following you to God and who He is. And repenting and letting Him lead you. Then that's terrifying. But for those of us who say, I come to church because I am a hypocrite. I'm sinful and I'm broken. I don't have it together. But He is my Savior. Like that is, that just, that just lifts me up. I say it often. I've got nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to fear because I'm in Christ. But here's this future wrath. As we know, the 20th century was the bloodiest century on record. Why is that? Karl Marx said that religion is the opium of the people. For Marx, the way of Jesus was a foolish delusion. But years later, after living through the rise and fall of both fascism and communism and seeing the genocide and violence brought out by Marxist ideas, the Polish poet, I can't pronounce his name, he argued that the true opium for the people is belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, our greed, our cowardness, our murders, we are not going to be judged. The modern world has it wrong. We are going to be judged. Yahweh's, God's justice is a good thing. Even when I nuance it out, it's still terrifying. But remember, God's end goal is a world with no evil. Yahweh's justice isn't about retribution or payback or some kind of God-sized vendetta. It's about the healing and renewal of the world. That's why it's not rigid and it's flexible. It has a bend and pliability to it. He's highly sensitive to any change of direction. When we repent, He responds with mercy. But if we don't repent, then He'll only wait for so long before He puts a stop to our rampage. So... So there is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to say this fast. So there is in Scripture, as we understand God, there is a passive wrath. And in the Old Testament, what we have trouble with is a passive wrath that said, you have turned from me and turned from me and you're doing evil and vile and wickedness. And so I'm turning for you. My hand of blessing and protection. So here come the Babylons, Babylonians to Nineveh. Several decades later, here come the Babylonians to Jerusalem. It wasn't pretty. In our day... Here's what passive wrath looks like. Sin is its own disobedience. Reward for obedience, it's implicit. There's something there. And you see, for a life of porn addiction, There is punishment. It's a warped mind. It's a lack of intimacy with your spouse. It's even an erosion of pleasure. There's a penalty. There's a sin. The reward or the punishment for lying and cheating is, hear me now, you will get caught. You will always get caught. I'm going to go with Jesus in Luke 8, 17. The penalty, the punishment, if you will, 
For gossip is a lack of trust. When you talk about others, you're going to find yourself alone and paranoid in your mind because you've gossiped so much. You see, we're probably not going to face a Babylonian invasion. But Romans says, okay, in Romans 1, I've, I've turned them over. You have turned from me and turned from me and ignored me and mocked me time and time again. And so there's going to be justice. And here's the justice. I turn you over to sexual lust, to depraved minds. You're on your own. So I don't want to pastor a church where we don't talk about the wrath in God's love. Where we tame God and reduce Him to where we can all understand Him. Because He's not God. Would you stand with me? Lord, I ask You to be honored in our midst today. Lord, for us, Those of us who are kicking, straining and striving, I pray that we could come to you and relax in you. That you move our hearts to faith. In my own life, the journey of questions and being challenged by smart people and coming to this conclusion. That we can be smart and believe in you. In fact, it's the greatest wisdom to know you. Lord, reveal yourself. Work in our midst. Help us to be a people who repent. Who have you high and lifted up on the throne. In Jesus we pray. You're standing. Would you... um, You want me to have a seat?